For our next message, it should be brought to us by Mr. Mash, excuse me, Matthew Steele. It is entitled, A Hateful or a Loving God? Thank you, Sean. Hello again. Long time no see. Um, just had a thought uh, from earlier, before I, I really get into my message, but uh, we have the announcement about uh, refrigerator space, if anybody has any uh, at the feast. Um, just want to let everybody know that this, we are up to 186 folks registered for the feast in Tanglewood. Um, and there's going to be people that show up that haven't registered online, so um, we're, uh, we're excited and um, uh, a little bit challenged by those numbers. It's a little bit uh, bigger than our Branson crowd, but looking forward to it. And, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, my mind has certainly been on the feast, and we're, you know, heading that direction pretty rapidly. Earlier this week, I had the privilege of addressing a group of about 100 or so uh, young people and their parents at the local chapter of the National Christian Forensics and Communication Association. That's a pretty long-winded uh, name for an organization, but it's basically a speech and debate organization. And I will tell you that it's quite intimidating to be giving a speech to this particular audience, right? Because they are already, in many cases, or are on the way to becoming highly skilled public communicators, whether it's in speech or debate or, or both. And so here they all are sitting there critiquing what I'm doing and saying and it's a little intimidating, you know, and they're making notes. And I'm like, are they making notes on what I'm saying? Or are they making notes about my nervous moving around of my feet? And it didn't help that the podium was completely clear plastic. <laughs> you know, you can't really tell what my hands and feet are doing behind here, and, but they could. Um, and it was pretty interesting. Um, but, you know, the, the program itself is, is, is just really fantastic, and I'm very grateful for it. Uh, not just because my sons are in it, and it's teaching them skills of how to communicate, maybe not necessarily even publicly, but just how to communicate one-on-one, -on -one, you know, and uh, to hopefully be um, uh, able to communicate to adults and, and other youth in the world around them and, and not kind of, uh, be afraid of that. Um, and so it's giving them lots of skills and, and growth and, and certainly challenges. But then also the program overall itself. I'm really grateful for all the adult teachers uh, and adult members of the club who are running this and spending their time, and my wife is included in one of those, uh, in order to help young people gain these skills, and push back against the incoherent and the unreasoning world in which we live in and the philosophies that the world has. And it really is enabling these young people to, to be a bulwark 
as it were, against the, what I call the barbarian minds that we have today, who like to use great language and swelling words with no meaning and no understanding of truth or history or values. And yet they state that they are displaying values. And so this club and many other, other clubs across the country are trying to equip and enable young people to, to, to have these skills and to be able to communicate with these skills their faith. And it's a really, it's a really powerful thing. As part of the process of speaking uh, to the club, they're, they're having, I, I, I don't remember exactly how many guest speakers, um, a number of us are, are going to speak over the course of the, uh, the next few months, I think it is. And uh, they give you a list of things to, uh, to, to draw from. And the reason being is because these are some of the items that the students have to speak about. And so in the apologetics area, they get four minutes to prepare. So they're given a topic. They get four minutes to prepare. Four minutes. Yeah. Write a sermon in four minutes. Ten. And then six minutes to answer uh, that topic or that question. And those of you that have done speech and debate in general are going to be very familiar with, with this format. But, but here are just some of the very easy subjects that they are presented with. Explain the meaning and significance of the omniscience of God. Pretty light topic, really. Take care of that pretty quick. Or the meaning and significance of the omnipotence of God. Or the omnipresence of God. Or the transcendence and eminence of God. Um, explain the meaning and the significance of the righteousness of God, the sovereignty of God, or the grace of God. So they don't know which one of these things they're going to get. They just go pick it up off the table. It's got a piece of paper. And, you know, I've judged these things, and they, they go over in the corner, and they get four minutes on the timer, and they've got some note cards, and they've got some scriptures and some study that they've done ahead of time on all of these topics. And then they have to give an answer within six minutes and then get judged upon it. Who thinks that sounds like fun? But they're really fun to watch and amazing to watch, especially as they're getting more experienced in it and they're getting older. I think the age range is from 12 to 18. 12 to 18. So they can really blow your socks off when they've been in the program for a few years. So I had to pick from some of these. Oh, I've got two speeches to do. I did one. I'm going to do another. And I, I, had, to, I had to pick um, from this list. So as I was going through the list again, I, I was looking at it. And this one really jumped out at me. Um, and I don't know if you do this, but I, I like to argue with questions. So not just accept on face value the question, but I like to argue whether the question is even valid. Right? So 
we have this question. It says, analyze and respond to the statement, the Old Testament God is a God of hate, while the New Testament God is a God of love. Now, you know, where do you start there? Well, it says analyze and respond to this statement. So you can analyze and respond any way you want. Firstly, do we even accept the premise? Do we even accept the basis of the question? That God is a God of hate in one sense and that he's a God of love in the other. Well, we might naturally say, yeah, of course he's a God of love. We agree with that part. And then we might say, well, we disagree that he's the God of hate. But are we still accepting the premise of the question? And what does it mean? What does it mean for us? And how God is with us? So when I read this statement, what stood out to me in many ways is because I think Christians in general accept some version of this. Certainly in more Protestant Sunday circles, this is more accepted, I think. But do we think that same way? Earlier I was sitting there listening to Ken's message and he was reading a scripture and man, that doesn't sound like a lot of loving was going on, did it? You know, people getting skewered with spears, curses coming on things and people and getting trapped in sin, corruption. But is that the same thing? Is that what we mean by God as being a God of hate? Or is he being a God of justice? Because there's a difference, isn't there? But like I say, I think in some ways, sometimes this thinking gets into our head. Maybe not a God of hate, but old, harsh, judgmental, law-driven God in the Old Testament. And in the New, we've got the kinder, friendlier version that is about grace and love. Is that even true? Is that what we have? What do you think? What do you think about that? Is he an angry, vengeful, harsh God? And then in the New Testament, he's had a completely change of heart and become this different kind of God altogether. So there's a lot of ways that we can go and, and examine this. And I was tempted to, to go down the road of, well, let's understand maybe our church history and the use of fear tactics and the use of uh, uh, legalism to control people because we have that, don't we? You know, and one of the things that it made me think of, even in Christian tradition, is back in, in Europe, in big cathedrals, you know, as you're entering into the cathedral, you'll see all these carvings on the stone around the edge of the doors. And you maybe have seen some of these. And they depict people burning in lakes of fire down here. And as you go higher up towards the church, well, then now you're getting towards heaven. So there's various stages that you find people falling down to hell or rising up to heaven. 
that's part of the thinking that goes on, and part of the narrative and maybe the subtle communication that we've had in the Christian world. Where does that come from? Well, we can do a pretty deep dive into pagan mythology, can't we? Because that's certainly the imagery that we get from various pagan gods. They're vengeful, they're vindictive, and they have every kind of human behavior and appetite because they were the gods of our own making, weren't they? But I don't think that's the way to go. I think the better approach is to just let the word of God speak for itself. That's a novel idea, isn't it? Let's just read it on the face of it. What is the word of God trying to tell us about the nature and the character of God, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New? And when I thought about it some more, I really thought it was appropriate because as we're coming to this time of the Feast of Tabernacles, I think the answer to this question is or can be seen in the Feast of Tabernacles and all the, sim- the uh, imagery and, and, and truth that we get from the Feast and understanding we get about what God's nature is and what he's trying to do here. Because I think the institution of the Feast of Tabernacles and the installation of the actual tabernacle amongst the children of Israel, central in their entire life, everything revolved around it. They moved when it moved. You know, when God started to move, they picked up that tabernacle and moved with it. And when he stopped, they put the tabernacle back there. And he was central to every part of Israelite life. That installation of the tabernacle itself shows us the nature of God. And we we so easily get distracted by the hard things that happen in Scripture, the, the hard judgments, the punishments that God brings sometimes. But we overlook what's central to his engagement with Israel from the very beginning. So we can see this, and we can start looking at this in Exodus chapter 24. We're kind of leading up to the context of, of what we're going to uh, dig into here. It's, it's starting in verse 1. It says, Now God said to Moses, Come up uh, to the Lord, you and Aaron, uh, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with it. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord uh, and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And it's so funny to read that, right? And knowing the rest of the story, as Ken mentioned because they were miserable at doing that. But at least in this moment, they desired to do this. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. 
And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So we have the children of Israel. They're making this contractual agreement, right? They're making this covenant, the covenant of blood. And we call it the old covenant, right? And because it's been replaced and we have the new covenant. And that's, that's, of course, that's good. But in many ways, we kind of look at the old covenant and just, well, it's old and tired out and worn. It was the new covenant right here. This was brand new. Now, God had made covenants with Abraham and Isaac, Jacob. Yes, he had made those promises and those covenants, and they had been secured by sacrifice, by blood. But up until this point, an entire nation had never made a covenant with God, the real God. And in this covenant, there's we will do this, and he will do that. And it's a true contract of obedience and blessing. Just think about that for a minute. I mean, as much as we and should appreciate our founding documents as U.S. citizens and the incredible meaning and, and blessings that have flowed from those, how much more so should that have been in this covenant directly made with God powerful agreement. It was an amazing thing that God was doing here. And then baked within it, though, is something that is the defining characteristic uh, for our purposes today about God. Whether he's this vengeful God, this angry God, or if he's the God of love. Continuing on in verse 9, it says, Then Moses went up also Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. Think of that. They went up, and they saw the God of Israel. You know, we, we tend to think of Moses going up to the mountain, and we'll read that later. But there was, there was actually 70 plus of them that went up and saw the God of Israel. And under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. How would you like to do that? And, and, and what's more, think about being in that moment. Here's the God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth. He is making this astounding covenant and a new relationship with this, these people. And they are sitting down with him and having a meal. Who would like an invitation to that party? Just think about that. And we kind of, you know, we forget about it. We skip over this. 
At the start of that day, that day they were writing a new covenant between God and Israel. Between really God and man. Because Israel could grow and more people could come and, and partake of this covenant if they were willing. Well, this kind of connects to another time that God had a meal, doesn't it? With a select group of individuals. We find that in Luke chapter 22 and verse 14. Because it says, when the hour had come, he, Jesus, sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God come. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. We just got this beautiful imagery, don't we? Okay, they, they weren't on the sea of glass. It wasn't quite such a big presentation. But it was a covenant meal on the day in which he would secure a new covenant with his own blood. A covenant meal that was reflective of a covenant meal that the elders of Israel had with God on the mountain. I wonder if Jesus was thinking about that as he was having that meal with the disciples, as he was thinking about what was coming, as he also thinking about the past, thinking about Moses, his friend, thinking about everything that had happened, thinking about how Israel had failed and how they had suffered so much for failing that first coming covenant. And then was he thinking to a future time when there's another sea of glass. In Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 it says, after, I, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And just earlier in this passage, it describes this throne, and it's on this sea of glass. And so here we have the church, the 144,000 and the great multitude presented before God, and it's like, again, another covenant meal, they are now eternal. They are raised in Christ Jesus. And they are before him, before the throne. But there's another phrase in here that jumped out to me that I hadn't thought about, really, in the, in the way it's written. Because you just think, well, this is just a, a statement of praise. This is just what the saints are saying and, and what the angels are saying. And what that voice says. 
Look at it a little bit more closely. It says, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Whose salvation is it? It's not ours, is it? It belongs to Jesus. It belongs to the Lamb. It's provided to us. It's given to us. But it's his. And there was nothing that we could do to earn it, to make it, in any way to achieve this salvation. It is 100% owned and operated by Jesus Christ. And he decides who's saved. No one else. Not even you. He decides if you are his and he has saved you. In verse 11, it continues, And the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered me, saying, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night. And he who sits on the throne will tabernacle among them. And they shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more, and the sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of walkers. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Who wants to be invited to that party? Can we go now? That is where we want to be. And it's all provided for us. It's a salvation given to us that we could not earn. And God is tabernacling, isn't he? He's central to his people. He's living amongst his people, tabernacling, just like Israel. And it's also reflective in this language here. Why does it say that they'll neither hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore, the sun won't strike them anymore, nor any heat? What were some of the complaints of the children of Israel? What are we going to eat? There's no water for us to drink. We're just going to die out here in the wilderness. We should have stayed in Egypt. They had an opportunity to be like this, but on the earth. And it's interesting how these same elements come out and are reflected in God tabernacling amongst his people. Spiritual now, yes, but made so by the salvation that he's bringing to each and every one of us. So if we go back to Exodus 24, I think picking it up, maybe in verse 12, and then the Lord said to Moses, come unto me, come up to me on the mountain, and be there, and I will give you the tablets of stone, and the law, and the law and commandments which I have written, 
that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has difficulty, let him go with them. Well, that may have been a bit of a mistake, right? Leaving Aaron in charge. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain, and in the eyes of all the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So there he was, learning from God, getting those Ten Commandments, which, as we know, he later breaks. (laughs) A symbolic moment that was a real moment that was going on when he comes down and finds the children of Israel Uh, forgetting the covenant that they agreed to just 40 days ago, and more than forgetting, just almost throwing it in God's face. A lot of leaders got to be dead. I I don't know what their reasoning was, but why they weren't wiped out at that moment is really based on one factor, right? Whether God is the God of the vengeful God, the hateful God, the God of love, and more specifically, the God of mercy. Continuing on in Exodus 25 and verse 1. Then the Lord God spoke to Moses, and he said, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And, you know, that's interesting, too. It's volunteer. It was a volunteer offering. There was no prescription here that if they don't bring me this offering, I'm going to send fire down on them. It's a volunteer offering. And this is the offering which you'll take for them. Gold and silver and bronze and blue and purple and scarlet thread and fine linen, goat's hair and ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stone to be set in the ephod and the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may tabernacle. Tabernacle. Dwell among them. Does that sound like a vengeful, angry God? that just is looking for people to walk out of line so that he can smack them down? Or does that sound like a God that wants to move in with us and live with us and be central to our life? According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishing, just so you shall make it. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood And two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and shall make it on a mold 
uh, molding of gold all around. And you shall cast four rings uh, of gold for it and put them in the four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two on the other. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark. And the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken out. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I give you. You know, we often read this list of things and these pieces that come together. gets a little bit monotonous. But think about the value of all of these things and what that meant at the time to people that had just come out of slavery. And yes, they kind of robbed the Egyptians, right? We remember that. They, they took the spoils from the Egyptians. And now God is saying, I want you to give some of that so that we can make this incredibly valuable box, a priceless box, to put something even more priceless inside. testimony, the law of God, the maligned law of God so often, right? Because if we just fall out of line and we fail to follow that law, he's, he's going to get us. He's going to put this precious law of God in this precious box. And then he's going to do something even more powerful to put a lid on it. He's going to seal in the law with a lid of mercy. We'll talk about that. You know, in Micah chapter 3 and verse 6, God says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. And then again, he also says in another place, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. That's another one of those scriptures, I think, that we read the keeping of the commandments part, and we can be tempted to say, oh, well, if I fail, then the lightning bolts are going to come, the judgment's going to come, the punishment is going to come. And yet, we forget the first part. We love him. Do we love him? Do we love him? Do you love him? Yes. He says that he will keep a covenant with us for a thousand generations. It hasn't even been that many generations. Think about that. Is God the God of hate? vengeful God that's looking to get us the minute we step out of line of that law? Or is he the loving, merciful God that has set us up 
for success. Set us up for salvation and mercy. It says, and he repays those who hate him to their face and destroys them. So who does the hating? Is it God that does the hating? Or is it us that can do the hating? When we reject him, we reject the salvation that he's brought for us. When we discard his law as a way of life, we're hating him. It's not the other way around. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I command you today to observe. But what does happen when we fail to follow the commandments of God? Are we condemned? Are we consumed? Did God just destroy us? Did he destroy Israel? He punished Israel. We know that. But did he destroy them? No. He didn't. They were only condemned if they, if they didn't do something specific. And we're going to dig into that. In Exodus chapter 25 and then picking up in verse 17. It says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. And a cubit shall be and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. And you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end and you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings and they shall face one another. And the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put testimony that I will give you. I have a question. Why is it that the cherubim's faces are targeted and looking toward the mercy? Now you can think, well, that design, it could have been, you know, a seat and it was it was just armrests and a backrest and it was a seat and that, that's kind of the way that they were just naturally be positioned. Or is God saying look at the mercy seat. Put your focus here where my mercy is. Focus on my grace, on my salvation, on my mercy. Here's the focus. And then we have right here at the beginning of it, of the beginning of this covenant, of the beginning of the giving of the law, we have capping it all off is this seat of mercy. And yet sometimes we think that God was the God of vengeance. And if we step out of line, he's going to come crashing down on us and destroy us, punish us very harshly. But yet he bakes into the covenant, into this 
system of agreements with God, he bakes into it at the very beginning a means by which we can find restoration and atonement. Which is what we're looking forward to celebrating as well. And it's that mercy seat that is this powerful symbol of this grace, this mercy. Through the mercy seat. He shows us really his nature and who he is. It says, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And the ark, you shall put, in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there, I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So here we have this mercy seat that is covering what? It's covering the law of God because that's been put on the inside. So we already have mercy layered on top of the law, on top of the testimony of God. Why? Why would he do that? Could it be because he knew that we couldn't possibly keep this law perfectly? And yet we think that he might be the God of vengeance and is looking to destroy us when we just fail to meet that law for all of our trying. In the middle of the camp of Israel, there was to be a tabernacle and a holy sanctuary for God to dwell in. And in the most holy part of that tabernacle, there was an Ark of the Covenant that holds the law of God and the covering, covering that law and shielding us from that law in some ways was the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, God would sit and we can meet him there. Moses could meet him there. And of course we know that the person that would sit on that seat and meet Moses there is Jesus Christ. Is God a God of love or is he a God of hate? He's always been a God of love. Has not changed, just like we read earlier. He has not changed. Baked into his covenants in the very beginning was this mercy. And yet the old one, we're told, failed. The old covenant failed. And we often think that it was the breaking of God's law that caused the old covenant to fail, right? Israel just couldn't obey God. And that, <laughs> that certainly looks like the case. But was that really the cause of the failure? Breaking of the law, was that the cause of the failure? Well, we just have already established that we cannot keep the law of God perfectly. So if breaking the law of God was brought about the failure of the first covenant, the original covenant, then what was the point of making that covenant in the first place? 
just setting them up? Or was there an opportunity there for that covenant to work in their life? For the law of God to work in their life and for mercy to work in their life? Why did it fail? God tells us in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. They broke the covenant. Not by breaking the law. They broke the covenant by not repenting and taking advantage of the mercy that comes on the mercy seat. That comes with that atoning sacrifice. But yet Jeremiah says, we are going to become the ark. And he's going to write the law, write this new covenant. And indeed he has, hasn't he? In our hearts and in our minds. And he's covered it with mercy. He's covered it with the mercy seat in our hearts. Covered it with the blood of the lamb. Sprinkled on our hearts. And then we meet him there. We meet him there when we have failed, when we repented of our failures, when we have broken God's law, when we've broken his trust. We meet him there every time to be redeemed again and again. That's why we do atonement every year. That's why we keep Passover every year to remind us that we can go to that mercy seat and meet him there. All the time, every time. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11, the writer says, But Christ came as a high priest of good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered into the most holy place once and for all, having attained obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. We have this new covenant 
we have become like individual arcs of the testimony of God in our life, the testimony that he is perfecting in us, and he's capped it all off with a mercy seat that he sits in, in our hearts. And we just have to meet him there every time. If we refuse to accept God's mercy, if we refuse to accept the covering that he has provided, then all we will see is judgment. And I suspect all we'll see is our own judgment because our own works will condemn us. But in Christ Jesus, we will see that he is and has always been a God of love. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19, we're told that we can have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and that having a high priest over the house of God, we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, having that mercy seat, in our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That's that testimony. That's our testimony. That's our hope in Christ Jesus, unique to each one of us, and it is in the, the ark of our hearts. Hold that fast. Keep the lid on it. Don't let it fall out. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Together, this community of believers in which God is tabernacling amongst us. It's the same imagery, it's the same story, and it's the same message, the God of love. And that's why we keep the feast, isn't it? That's why we do these things. That's why we're going to celebrate atonement, and we're going to stand back and we're going to watch as our salvation is performed for us and then given to us, laid right here in our hearts on the mercy seat. Is God the God of love? Yes, he is. Always has been. Always will be.